I was talking to somebody today who said, well, if you're a female immigrant, there are about 70 to 80% of investors that you shouldn't even think about because they just don't invest in female immigrants. I would say it's, it's not true. Of course, everybody looks at the team. I never heard from any investor that we met that, yeah, you know, we don't invest in, in female founders because they're female, or we don't invest in immigrant founders because they're immigrant. And now if you look at the statistics, I would say that half of the companies that get to a point of unicorn are actually created by immigrant founders. Typically, there are other reasons not to invest and it's maybe lack of. So I would say, you know, if you want to grow uh, an international, a global company. Hello, I'm Somi Arya. I'm a tech philosopher and the founder of Impeak. Welcome to the third season of my podcast. In season one, I mainly interviewed inspirational women in business and technology. In season two, we explored Web3, blockchain, and AI. Now, in this third season, we'll dive deeper into the wider startup scene and take a look behind the scenes at how technology startups get funded and the trial and tribulations that come with building in the ever-changing business landscape. In today's episode, we talked with Zamir Shuko of Vibranium, a San Francisco-based VC firm. Zamir shares his perspective and experience on how things are evolving in the startup ecosystem. We also discuss whether location really matters when it comes to getting funding and the benefits of having access to the San Francisco venture capital scene. If you're a founder or part of a startup team, this is an episode you don't want to miss. Well, uh, Zamir, first of all, thank you for being here. I know, you know, the, the way that we met was that we wanted to book you to speak on the platform on uh, one of the topics for the series that we're building for startups. And um, I spoke to your assistant, I think, Galina, and, and she told me what a great speaker you were. And then I went and checked out some of your podcast interviews. And I, I was just really impressed. And, and I thought that we would have such a good conversation. So the way that I do these conversations is usually... I treat it as like an hour of consultation mentorship, you know, where uh, I'm, I'm asking a bunch of questions that I genuinely have, you know, as a, as a founder, there are a lot of things that I'm dealing with on a daily basis. It's a li little bit like founder therapy for me. So, so it's like a therapy session where, you know, I can, I can ask all of the things that are on my mind. So if you're okay with that, you know, maybe the first thing you can do is tell everybody a little bit about yourself you know, where you are based and what you're doing, and then we will get into the conversation. Well, happy to join you today and share some of my insights. My name is Zamir Shuko, and I'm a general partner of Vibranium VC Venture Fund. We are located in Silicon Valley in the heart of Bay Area, uh, the city called Menlo Park. That's where we're office at. And we have a diverse team. You know, some of our members are in the uh, United States, some of them are in Europe. So Galina is our head of PR and marketing, and she's actually in Europe, uh, helping us to set up, you know, amazing uh, meetings and podcasts like this. Uh, so before uh, doing venture investment for many years, I used to build accelerators. Uh, so um, all together with my team, we built 42 accelerators to be precise. And uh, I mentored over 300 startups individually, personally, because I always like to get involved in all of these programs. Uh, so, you know, I think I have some things to share. Besides that, I am a serial entrepreneur myself. I've built, you know, companies, I've built organizations, some of them were nonprofit. Uh, so uh, all of that experience rounded me up. 
to do what I do right now best. And I think the role of uh, the investor, and I, we can talk about this more, uh, is not only to give money to the startup founders, but also to support them and help them with all the experience that they have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in when you're raising for early stage, most of the time with angels, they don't necessarily have that um, um, the time, the ability, the inclination to give that support. It's only when you start raising more formal uh, money that's when you know uh, uh, you you get those types of support. So. Um, so far, I've only raised from angels, uh, and uh, I've raised one and a half million dollars so far from angels. So it, it, I'm just preparing for my first, as we record this, I'm preparing for my first kind of like institutional investors. So um, so maybe that's that's a good place to start. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the difference between raising from angels as opposed to institutional investors. Um, how how are some of the mindsets are different, some of the things that you can expect, um, what are the pros and cons? And I mean, you can't raise from angels forever. You have to uh, eventually go into raising from uh, institutional investors. So, so can you talk a little bit about the differences there? Sure. That's a good question. And uh, typically, uh, angel investors are people who uh, made their money, you know, either do a business or investing or some other way. Uh, or inherited it from uh, from from rich parents or rich uncle, and uh, they invest their own money, right? So they um, and they invest typically small checks, uh, you know, starting from like ten thousand dollars and all the way up to a few hundred thousand dollars. There are some super angels that we call them that uh, are professionally investing their own money, uh, and they can invest larger checks, maybe up to half a million dollars, but they have larger portfolios. So a typical angel would invest, you know, from five to 10 uh, companies, and that would be enough uh, to, you know, to learn and to understand what this is about. Uh, super angels can have 30 to 50 companies in their portfolios. Uh, now, when it comes to institutional investors or early, early funds, um, let's say Vibranium, for example, I'm a general partner of the fund, and I raised money into the fund from other people from limited partners so i am um, running the organization and investing other people's money into the startups so i you know i've built a system i've built a team i've built a pipeline of projects now this is something that typically angels don't have on that scale when it comes to pipeline so uh that's why angels join up together into different syndicates so first of all to get a larger pipeline uh, more people more startups coming their way Second of all, to diversify their risks, they join forces and create syndicates to invest into one startup so they can help the company grow and they're more competitive with their check as a syndicate, right? If each one of them puts 50,000 or 100,000, together five people can grow their check up to 500,000. That makes them more compatible uh, when it comes to a choice from a founder whether I should take money from five business angels or from one uh, seed fund, right, or pre-seed fund. So uh, those are some things that are uh, differentiating. When it comes to portfolio management, you are absolutely right. Angels do help, but they have limited time, right? They typically still run their businesses and still are involved and busy with with uh, making more money, uh, where GPs and their teams are dedicated specifically to just this job, investing and then running the portfolio. Because typically the fund is like 10 years old. So the first 
you know, four to five years, you're actively investing the rest uh, of the time, you actually helping the portfolio companies and you are exiting these deals. Uh, so that's how, you know, these typically funds are operating. And we, you know, when we built the company, when we built the, the, the team uh, of the fund, we hire people that we know can help. Uh, in different forms or shapes to the portfolio companies, right? With, let's say, marketing or PR or maybe some visibility or some contacts. So all of these things are important. Whenever we uh, talk to our founders from our portfolio teams, you know, like every month or every two months we have these calls, they can ask us any questions, right? Um, you know, regarding operations, regarding new contacts, regarding other investors. And it's our job to help them as much as we can. Mm, super interesting. How much of your time in general is spent on discovering new startups to invest in and how much of it is spent on helping existing portfolio companies? So like I mentioned, there are roles in the team. So in our uh, fund, we have a special per person. Uh, she's head of uh, pipeline scouting and partnerships. Uh, it's her full-time job to um, to initiate these uh, conversations with startups. So, uh, of course, I visit a lot of these demo days and different events as a GP of the fund, and I'm present at um, uh, these demo days as a judge. A lot of times, uh, I have speaking engagements where you know I try to share my experience, and those are also part of the visibility of the fund. So, after these speaking engagements, startups come to us and you know start asking questions: How do we apply, etc. Uh, but so I would say maybe 20, 30 percent of my time at the moment is about um, bringing new deals. Uh, now, because we started recently only in 2022, I would say only 10, maybe 15 percent of my time is spent to help the portfolio founders because we, we closed only 10 deals so far. So portfolio is still growing. So the rest of the time is you know, me looking at all the data that these startups provide and that my team provides because we have stepped pro process where we have an analyst looking at the startup you know, and uh, do, giving the scoring. Then we have an interview with, with investment manager and then he does his uh, scoring and then that um, project passes uh, to me and then I do my own interview and I basically analyze everything that I hear from the founders. Uh, and then you know, uh, if everything is good, then we go to investment committee. So I would say that about 60% or maybe 70% of my time is spent by looking at the data and talking to the startups who are already in the pipeline. Okay, awesome. Um, so uh, I, I might appear like I'm jumping from um, topics to topics that are not necessarily always coherent. I have um, ADHD, but that's the, you know, but, but I that's, think we all have a little bit of ADHD. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think, I think if we are anybody who just starts, who decides to create a company has to have a little bit of that because it, it does appear, um, you know, to be like that. That's, that's, that's kind of like how you run a business. Um, we talked earlier as we were, um, before I press record, I was talking about the fact that I'm considering possibly even relocating to Silicon Valley because it just seems like that's a very high concentration of the type of businesses that I'm building, you know. So uh, so tell me a little bit about how much you agree or disagree with that. Do you think there is a need? Is it important to do that? Once you answer that, then I want to talk a little bit about the state of investment in female founders. Because like as a, as a female founder, immigrant 
obviously I am a British citizen now, but it took me a long time to become British. So I was talking to somebody today who said, well, if you're a female immigrant, there are about 70 to 80% of investors that you shouldn't even think about because they just don't invest in female immigrants. And you should only specifically look at certain. And then being in the UK, that also cuts out quite a lot of other uh, potential investors. So, so I want to see how much truth there is from your perspective to these types of assertions, you know, whether whether you, you agree or disagree that this is the case. So, so let's talk about the location first, and then we'll come to the female bit later. Yeah, very good. Talk, a very good, you know, question and um, to talk about. Now, uh, when it comes to Silicon Valley, I believe this is the best place on earth to raise a company, right? Um, I've been working with uh, Silicon Valley for many years, uh, coming in and out. I, you know, I did some courses at Stanford, uh, and we've attracted a lot of the uh, top speakers and experts from Silicon Valley to our acceleration programs in the past. So all of the best methodologies that we know existing right now about building a startup, uh, you know, um, building the product and all of these other things, they were created here. Uh, now, it is absolutely true that the concentration of talent is very high in Silicon Valley. Everybody from around the world wants to come here. The concentration of money is the highest in the world, right? The amount of uh, venture deals that is happening here is the largest in the world. So the number of funds, the number of top accelerators, the number of business angels is, you know, exceeding any other place in the world, right? So the ecosystem is very developed. Now, again, when it comes to like exits and when it comes to, um, you know, uh, being acquired, same thing. There's a lot of these larger companies, corporations that are, you know, heavily acquiring uh, uh, startups on early stage and even later stage. And, uh, you know, later uh, investments like private equity, family offices, uh, different large funds that are also acquiring companies. So, you you know, every piece of the ecosystem exists here, you know, and the top universities that provide talent like Harvard, uh, sorry, like uh, Stanford, like Berkeley, uh, other universities are also providing some good talent. Uh, and there's a um, constant influx of immigrants. This is an important piece. Uh, I'm also an immigrant. You know, I was not born in the United States, so I came in. And now if you look at the statistics, I would say that half of the companies that get to a point of unicorn are uh, actually created by immigrant founders. So uh, to touch up on your comment about, you know, immigrant founders and female founders that some investors don't invest just because of that factor, I would say it's it's not true because anybody I talk to, uh, they uh, talk about, hey, you know, this is a great product, this is a great idea, you know, this is a great business model, et cetera. Of course, everybody looks at the team, right? But I never heard from any investor that, you know, we met that, yeah, you know, we don't invest in, in female founders because they're female, or we don't invest in immigrant founders because they're immigrant. Uh, typically, there are other reasons not to invest, and it's maybe lack of understanding of the local culture. If a person just arrived, you know, they, they might have a hard time uh, building relationships, let's say, with enterprise um, you know, customers, and their product is an enterprise product. So it's more about whether investors believe that this particular founder can achieve uh, you know, the goals that they're setting in order to grow the company, rather than 
what kind of background, uh, meaning ethnically or um, uh, otherwise they have. So Silicon Valley is a very diverse place. I mean, any any people of any race, of any uh, gender or, you know, of any belief uh, can be successful here. It's very tolerant to anybody. Uh, it's it's very open minded, and you can find people uh, uh, with with similar uh, values and similar beliefs uh, to join you as well. So I would say, you know, if you want to grow uh, an international, a global company, uh, Silicon Valley is the place to be to start because from here uh, you can raise enough resources, you can uh, gather enough people and talent to build uh, a really big and global company, maybe to change. Uh, lives of, of millions of people around the world. Uh, so uh, because we believe it that much, we actually have created and we're sponsoring this program, uh, which we call soft lending program. So we uh, help foreign founders to soft lend in the United States. And it's a free program. We don't charge for it. We don't take equity. We just want to help because we see a lot of demand and we see a lot of unfortunate mistakes that foreign founders are making while coming into the United States, uh, and they're wasting resources, money, time, and uh, you can avoid these pitfalls and mistakes by just talking for an hour to an expert uh, and getting all the explanations you need and then doing it the right way. And of course, we are interested in investing in these companies once they have some traction on the local market. That's our long-term goal, right? So I do, you know, doing these programs, building these relationships. Super interesting. I think we should definitely do a session on uh, the Impeak platform for our community of startup founders that we're building to explain that. Uh, so uh, when is your program going to be launched? Or so actually the, launching the program in the beginning of October. So uh, we, we're still uh, eager to uh, get more people, more applicants, even though officially we closed yesterday. But I know there's some founders that keep forgetting the dates <laughs> they need to apply. So we still keep our doors open so anybody can apply uh, and uh, we'll be happy to support them. Okay, so be sure to uh, share that with me because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do Certainly. it. And I've never been to San Francisco. So I, every time I've been in the U US, it's been New York or uh, LA. Um, so this is uh, the, the first time I'm coming in. I want to spend about a week or two getting to know people, um, scouting, thinking about you know whether I should make that move. So this will be super helpful. Um, so if, if there is an opportunity to talk to people directly, um, definitely I would love to do that. Um, so on the other issue of the female founder thing, I've thought very hard and long about this uh, issue. And initially when I first started the platform, just so you understand exactly what we are doing, we are trying to solve a problem of emerging technologies, companies in emerging technologies uh, when they want to sell their product or service, they need to first build a community. Well, first build an audience. So, you know, on social media, you can build an audience, but you don't build a community. It's, it's only when you build a community that you can then start then selling them, right? So, so you need to educate people first. So let's say, for example, if you're an AI company, if you're a blockchain company, if you are, you know, a climate tech, you know, like one of these kind of emerging sectors, you need to first educate your audience build a community, and then sell to them. And the current types of platforms that exist, um, they, they are not really designed for this type of a community building. They're not really designed for B2B community building. 
you know, there are platforms like Discord, there is, uh, uh, there are things like, you know, people are using Zoom, they're creating uh, webinars, creating Slack. So there isn't a platform that's bringing it all together. So the way I see it is that LinkedIn is the place where you build your, your top of the funnel, your, your, you know, initial audience. The platform that we are building, Impeak, that's where we want people to come in and, and actually create a channel. Within their channel, they have webinars. They have, you know, basically it's like going to a, a constant uh, conference. So it's, it's, it's exactly like, you know, a, a conference that you would go to where you meet potential prospects and, and then you want to keep in touch with them and, and build a community of them. So you would have your conferences, you would have your on-demand content, uh, you would have a forum and uh, you have a full on CRM and you basically bring all of that in one place. You build a community, uh, for example, of uh, research analysts or, you know, a community of CIOs of, of law firms, you know. So, so these are the type of things that we don't even use the term community usually for these things. But I really believe that the, the future of social media is going to be a community building. And community building is not really a thing in, in B2B, but um, I think that uh, from my experience, I'm a three times LinkedIn top voice, I built an entire business, uh, B2B, my other business, my, my first business, I built it through thought leadership. So through thought leadership, you can build these um, communities of B2B, uh, potential, you know, uh, buyers, and then and then you um, you can upsell to them if if you want to do that. So that's what the platform is is designed for. And to in order to do that, we are also building our own community. And the uh, community that we are building is startups and VCs because we believe that there are a lot of VCs and uh, a lot of startups that could use the platform, you know, later on on a B two B level. So first, we are creating content for that um, you know initial community so basically we are like walking the talk uh, you know exactly what we are trying to uh, teach other people to do we are, we are showing them how it can be done how you can build the audience so that's the idea now from there I'm just wondering to what degree you uh, you see the role of community building in the future of SaaS. I think up until now, when we think about SaaS, the sales process that we think of is less community driven. But I feel that there is a trend there, uh, that that's changing, and we saw that, for example, with the All In podcast. You know that they just had this massive All In summit that I went to, and that was like a really good example of of community building around a podcast uh, and and thought leadership content that we didn't see before. So yeah, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this concept of community building for. Um, you know, SaaS products? Well, you know, I used to be a CMO a long time ago, you know, so I have a, a bit of a marketing background. So I, there's always uh, different ways to engage with your with your audience uh, before you sell them the product, after you sell them the product. So when it comes to community building, when it comes to podcasts and activities, you know, speaking engagements and these activities, just like an inbound marketing, right? When you spread the word and you teach the audience about the subject matter, you claim expertise in that subject. And then uh, understanding that you are an expert in that field, they come to you because they, you know, they believe that your product is good and then they start using it. And then, you know, the references happen in the kind of word of mouth and it's a product-led growth. Now, 
uh, I am also a big believer in the outbound marketing. You know, when you when you target certain audience, when you do advertising, when you use different channels, digital channels uh, to reach out to the audience. Uh, and, and the reason why I believe in the outbound marketing is because you have a lot more control of what's happening. You know, so you, because you know there's systems, there's metrics, there's conversions, there's all these different uh, you know numbers and everything. When it comes to uh, influencer marketing or thought leadership marketing, you know, uh, it's much harder to, um, uh, to 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 calculate or figure out uh, how your uh, for instance, a podcast or your speaking uh, engagement really affected your sales, right? So, I mean, you can see that, you know, there's more people coming, let's say, to the website, et cetera, but it's really hard to track down what activity exactly led to this particular thing. Now, when it comes to uh, SaaS products, right, or when it comes to venture investment into SaaS product, we really uh, drill down on the metrics, on the unit economics, because if the unit economics don't match they they don't work well uh then you know there is issues you gotta fix in the in, in the company right so first of all the customer what is your customer acquisition cost and what is the lifetime value so these two basic metrics there's a lot more around it but these two basic metrics they have to align and at least your CAC should be less uh or three times less than your LTV and then potentially you will have a profitable uh business model you know, when you get to scale. So uh, we always look at these things and whenever we see founders doing something and doing a lot of activity, but which is not driving sales directly, which will eventually engage the audience in a year or two. So they're kind of, we, we call it sometimes warming up the ocean, you know, like you're trying to warm up the ocean, but it's so big, you know, that, that the, your like uh, influence in LinkedIn or something is not making uh, making a difference and is not affecting your uh, bottom line, you know, sales. So it's always a question of whether what were you doing as as a founder or as an influencer is affecting the sales or I mean, it, it might make you feel good. You might have a lot of followers or likes but you don't see the effect. And it happens uh, many times. I've seen that in different businesses, uh, especially with people with large audiences. I've seen people with like millions of followers that tried to launch a startup, but eventually uh, they failed because the product was, was not good enough. It was not performing. Everything was built around their own persona. And now this is another thing which we call a bottleneck, right? If, if all the sales in the company are done because you know I'm an influencer or I have like a million followers on Instagram or a very big audience on LinkedIn. As soon as something happens to me, company starts you know uh, basically failing. So investors they uh, they look very cautiously at businesses that are you know around one single person, like around an influencer, because we all understand that you know right now it, everything is being sold because this person is popular. Um, will it continue if that person steps down as a CEO? Let's say, you know, company grows, right? Sometimes you have to step down into a different role, go to to your board of, you know, directors and let somebody else run the business because you might not have uh, enough uh, knowledge how to run a thousand people company, right? That happens all the time. So when CEOs step down and that was the person that everybody loved and they associated that person with that brand or with that product, what happens then? You know, is, is it going to uh, kill the company? Is it going to create problems, etc.? So we do think, and we do look at all of these things for sure. And when it comes to community growing, I'm a you know I'm a big uh, supporter of engaging with your community because I believe that 
customers are the best product designers your or your potential customers so when you talk to them when you uh, engage with them on a daily basis and you understand their pains their needs their goals you can build a really good product uh to uh, to satisfy whatever they're they're coming for and then um you know with with that and like i mentioned you know the the references the uh, word of mouth and uh sales growing basically by themselves uh, is an amazing thing in the beginning but again one thing to mention when investors look at what happened uh how did you grow 3x and the founder does not have the answer for that said well i just you know we did a podcast and then i went to this conference and then boom and all of a sudden that's also bad i mean growth is good but not knowing where the growth is coming from what exactly you need to do to continue that kind of growth that's uh something to to really watch for so um yeah, I agree. If, if that that's yeah. that's exactly why we are building this platform in a way that um, each community will have its own channel. And then within its channel, you can track everything. You can track how, who came to your uh, live session. You will see when you do your session, you'll see what it's like. You'll see how many say, people. you know, if, if there's something that you cannot measure, you yes. cannot make it better. So you got to be able to measure everything you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so you can see who came, for how long they stayed, how many times they asked the question, who watched the recording if they didn't make it, you know, who registered for it but watched the recording, they didn't, they couldn't come live. And then based on that, you can actually start to interact with them. And it's it's a bit typical kind of like what they do in in CPG products and the way that they like you 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 leave something in your cart and they they come back and they're like oh hey you left this right but in in b2b we don't really have that so now question i have is if you are introducing a solution that people are not familiar with um what is the best way so let me try and uh, explain that better let's go back to steve jobs how steve jobs introduced us to the iPod. It was a product that many people didn't know they needed. And, you know, but, but once they had it, they realized that they needed it. So that was, that's, that's a great, you know, example, or, or even iPhone, you know, with the touch screen and, and uh, you know, it's like, these are moments where you went from zero to one in some ways, because, you know, you, you introduce something to people that, they didn't know they needed, and then once they figured out, once they find it, they they can't live without it. Even even ChatGPT is a great example of that. And in some ways, I feel that um, you know what what we are trying to introduce to B two B products or these types of B two B frontier technologies, and and explaining this concept of community building to them is in many ways, it's not it's not very very. Um, intuitive to them. That's why we initially started building that in Web3, because in Web3, the concept of community was really well understood. You know, within the, uh, the blockchain kind of startups, the Web3 world, everybody understood community building. And they, they very well understood the difference between building a community and building an audience on social media. Unfortunately, Web3 didn't uh, proliferate the way that we thought it would. And we can talk a little bit about pivoting and all that. That's, that's another thing I'm dealing with as a founder. But there were some core ideas in Web3 in terms of community building that uh, I think apply really well to this new business model that I'm creating. But explaining that 
it's not always easy. So what's your suggestion when you are building a solution where people don't fully know they have a problem? Um, you know, because obviously the best item, the best types of startups would be somebody knows they have a problem, you solve their problem. But in most cases, those are the ones that are uh, quite crowded because there are everybody sees that there's that problem and everybody tries to solve that problem. But if you can find um, a corner of the market where there is a problem and, and people don't know that they have that problem, but you want to solve that problem for them in a way that once they have it, they can't live without it. Uh, so do you, what's your thoughts on, on presenting that type of solution? So, um, yeah, being, uh, being the first ones to, uh, to build something is a tough job because it's like a jungle, right? That you have to go through and you have to educate the, the market. And a lot of times the very first company that started doing something was not eventually the, the leader of that market. You know, the number two and number three <laughs> ran over them and, and kind of uh, got, got to, the, to the top of the mountain first. So um, one of the ways to do that is by engaging with um, well-known leaders in, in that field and getting them as partners to kind of be advocates of what you're building uh, or what you're promoting. Because when you are a startup, your brand recognition is very small. Uh, you have a small audience, so it, it will take time and effort and resources to build that. Uh, but if you engage with big names, let's say if you're doing this platform for funds, right, and you go to top tier funds and then you say, hey, you know, I can give you this for free right but uh, i would want your logo next to me and maybe some help with promotion if you feel that this product is good and is working well for your needs and your goals then you basically uh, start uh, leveraging uh, their weight their brand name and their reach uh, to the potential audience and the trust is much higher when it comes from a renowned brand, a trust for the new product or trying something or actually even following saying, hey, these guys from this large fund already using that product. Why we're not using it already? So I think one of the uh, easier ways and none of these ways are easy, right? It's going to be a lot of hard work. But I would say that one of the ways to kind of introduce a new product or a new category would be through these engagements and through these partnerships. Uh, making them fall in love with the product and having them as advocates of the product and then kind of growing it from there or raising a lot of money in the beginning, just like chat GPT, you know, and building something really amazing and then globally launching it. Right. But yeah. that's a, that's a talent that very few people can, can say they have uh, raising that much money for, for a product or for a category that does not exist, you know, and it's, is very very out in the future when you're going to start monetizing it so uh you know you got to be very um i don't know um, um telling the story right about what you yeah. were building is has to be so amazing so believable that investors will be like okay just close the door until we write the check you're not leaving you know that happened a few times in the past with with uh, big companies that we see now but uh, majority, you know, 99% of the startups, unfortunately, are not that lucky. Yeah, that's right. So let's go back to the original solution that you suggested. So I totally agree with you. I did that exact same playbook in Web3. I got the biggest names on Web in Web3 on our platform, on, on my podcast, built, you know, a presence, uh, Real Vision uses our platform, 
you know, Tom Bilio uses our platform with impact theory, uh, some of the biggest names in Web3 that you probably wouldn't mean much to you, but they were really big. So, so we definitely did all of that. But then Web3 didn't really take off. And, uh, and we've had to, for now, shelf it. So like, I don't necessarily call it a pivot. We're not going away from it. We are just shelving that side of the platform. We spend a lot of money, a lot of time building token gating, you know, making the platform EVM compatible. It works with all the blockchains um, that are EVM. And now it's like uh, I was at the All In Summit and I was telling people about what we've done. And they were like, those words are like now they're like swear words. Like, you know, like if you if you talk about EVM and Solana and, and all that, so it's like you're it's just swear words. Just don't even mention it. So that the market sentiment towards web3 is so low so we've had to basically completely shelf everything that we built and and uh we are having to uh, completely rebrand ourselves and and it's like going to the first step and, and like restarting um so so what's your thoughts on the type of resilience that it takes you know the, the uh, and especially if you're coming to the end of your runway you know, you've raised uh, some money, uh, you've built something that's not, that's not quite that, that market is not your fault. Like the whole of that market goes down, right? That entire technology goes down and, and people are just suddenly not interested in it. It goes from boom, like everybody wants to put the word blockchain next to uh, uh, their startup to now, oh, okay, we don't want the word blockchain. We want the word AI, right? So, so what's your um, suggestion for, uh, a founder dealing with that situation i'm asking for a friend <laughs> yeah um these uh hype waves as they call them they happen all the time this is not the first time not the second time and for sure not the last time when these waves are happening we've seen waves of nfts we've seen waves of icos we've seen waves of many different things even a wave wave of SPACs, right uh, a few years ago it was a very popular thing and it was not in the uh in the startup field, it was more in the field of, you know, open market. Everybody was saying SPAC is the new thing. Now you go to IPO with SPAC. Now, if you look at a bunch of SPACs, uh, everything is down. So these are the things that people are trying to, you know, they're trying to innovate. They're trying to create something new. And of course, not all, all of that is going to succeed or maybe um, the market is not ready. I mean, there's these uh, cycles, right, uh, of, of technologies uh how uh how they can get to mass market we always say hey there's you know these early adopters and then from there yeah, there's a death valley because if you cannot make it to the mass market uh, to to a majority of customers out there let it be b2c or b2b then you know you're going to end up uh, shutting down the company or you must you must pivot so this is a very normal situation when it comes to technologies many technologies did not um you know, skyrocket from the first try uh, when they did. So we have to just be prepared uh, for those kind of things. As investors, uh, we don't really go uh, and try to jump on the hype uh, wave. You know, when, when we, let's say this uh, beginning of this year, everything, every, everybody was like, AI, AI, let's invest in AI. A lot of money went into AI startups in the first quarter of uh, 23rd, uh, 2023. Now, second quarter of 2023, 48% drop in the financing. 
third quarter is going to be even worse. So drop, you know, everybody's just got interested. And now it's like, well, is this a real AI or you just, you know, add a chat GPT to your start? So um, this is like I said, it's normal. And and the reason why I, I really like uh, Bay Area, Silicon Valley, this area, because um, tolerance to risk and tolerance to failure is is very high. I mean, people understand that it's not about failing. It's about getting up and, and, and you know, trying again, trying again and again. So uh, when I look at the companies and when I look at teams and when I ask founders questions about, hey, tell me about your past experience, I would really love to hear about their past failures because I think failure teaches you a lot more than, you know, success. Uh, and uh, having failed companies in the past, you know, it's, it's actually a, a plus in my book uh, so whenever somebody tried and failed, and they failed not because they didn't try hard enough, but maybe uh, the market was not right, they ran out of resources, uh, maybe you know they needed to do more research or something happened like COVID. You know nobody could predict COVID. Uh, that's okay. It's not that they misused their resources or they, they were not good enough. It's that uh, there were obstacles in a way too big for them to to overcome. So I always look at the founder's motivation when it comes to, do I believe that this team can pull this off, this new thing that they're building? What is the motivation behind it? Do the founders really, uh, can they really relate to the problem? Uh, is it something personal to them? Because I think motivation of the founding team is the key differentiator between a successful company and a failed company. Because there's going to be so many hardships. There's going to be so many problems on the way that if you don't have the right motivation, Eventually, you'll get tired, then you kind of, you know, your hands will fall down. But if you do have the motivation, you will pivot, you will, you know, go seek talent, seek help, uh, find resources. Uh, some people, you know, sell their cars, sell their homes, you know, just to support what they believe in. And eventually, they succeed because they keep moving forward. So I would say that, uh, you know, the motivation is an important uh, factor here. And when it comes to pivoting, uh, just uh, get a look at all the previous things that happened. If it's a fail failure, just look at it as an experience. You know, uh, there is a joke about this. You know, uh, did you succeed or did you learn something? You know, so it's like I learned something. So if you learned something, and now you're much uh, more experienced and smarter, uh, you you know better how to build it the next time. A hundred percent. Yeah, and in our case, I mean, we still made money last year, and we made half a million. But the only problem is that because that uh was that came through tokens you know uh as we built membership tokens we can't replicate that now that the market is down so we are having to redo our entire um, monetization model which brings me to the question of there was a time a few years ago when you wanted to get funding for your startup people were more interested in traction than immediate revenue. Whereas now I see that there's a lot more emphasis on immediate revenue, right? Like, you know, when can you get to revenue as quickly as possible? Yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that change of heart or change of trend. Uh, you know, I, I, there, I know startups that raised in 2021, they raised maybe five, six million for their seed round. Um, and uh, uh, or uh, you know, 15, 20 million for their um, you know uh, Series A, 
and they seem to be in no hurry to to make money because they still they're well capitalized still you know they're they're going and they're they're coming from that school of thought that we're going to just build a big audience you know and uh and build technology and and then money will come later so just t- talk to me a little bit about that change of mentality the change in mentality happened in uh, in 22 when the market started falling down you know crumbling and everything else followed including secondaries market including venture markets uh, and uh, a lot of people lost a lot of money. So um, I remember this report by uh, Bessemer uh, during a Saster annual event last year, where they came forward and they said, now nobody cares about unicorns. Everybody cares about centaurs, you know, those companies that can get to 100,000 million, oh, I'm sorry, $100 million in ARR. So, uh, and that, that talk was about that investors now care about revenues rather than your valuations you know you can be a unicorn but you can have very small revenues or you can be not a unicorn but have very decent revenues and that company would uh, probably more more likely to get uh, investment and we're not talking about profits yet right we're talking about just revenues for now some companies become profitable only when they get to ipo so um that's true that that changed because um in reality and it's my belief that the one proof that your product is interesting or your product will be needed is that the market or customer pays money for that product. So that's that's validation, you know, market validation, that's what we call it. And uh, because technology started getting more complex, you know, with blockchain, with all of these other things that came forward, uh investors were a bit confused whether hey is this a, a really new cool technology that we should be you know supporting or is it gonna drop down again like everything else we've seen for the past few years so the one validation that everybody started wanting is the market validation with money that's why you see uh, because re- uh, when it comes to uh v- valuations this is a made-up number you know investors believe my startup is worth 50 million okay uh, there's no actual proof that this actually, you know, uh, the, the valuation. But when it comes to revenues, these are real customers that pay real money. They go to your real bank account, right? And then you can track it. So now uh, all the investors, they uh, they really want early traction in terms of revenues because that allows them to, uh, you know, de-risk their investment or prove that, you know they believe in this team but also there's this market demand and they're they're already selling so everybody now is kind of pushing startups okay start selling um you know i don't care for five dollars uh, it doesn't matter what price at this moment it's just uh, show that you can sell this thing to somebody for some real money and then uh, we'll talk about how to scale it how to fix your unit economics you know how to make you eventually profitable etc all of that will come later but first we need to make sure that this sells yes Uh, so mm, and it's about survivability again you know uh what we've seen recently there's a lot of down rounds happening every fifth startup is raising a down round because valuations drop but the companies that are actually raising well are the companies that can show uh low burn rates and then you know growing revenues and some of them are already coming to break even at seed stage Imagine that that was something unbelievable a while back that a seed company is already break even. So everybody is sacrificing speed of growth 
towards uh, survivability. Yeah, I mean because of because of what the market is right now, because everybody wants to stay alive rather than to keep on growing with these you know crazy speeds. Uh, and I think it will change eventually. You know, when markets go back to normal, everybody's going to be like, okay, now we're stabilized. Now let's uh, put more money into the growth. Let's not care much about the revenues, etc. But at this moment, and maybe for the next couple of years, I think that's going to be number one. Uh, differentiator, you know, if you have revenues and the revenues are growing. Yeah. For people who are starting out, um, you know, we've been going for a couple of years now. We we tested a lot of different, you know, product markets with. I think we are finally got to a place where we know what we are doing. So now we are just, um, you know, we've, we've made all the mistakes. Uh, we did make money along the way, um, but now I think we are in a better position to to really start uh, monetizing the platform, um, but what's your thoughts for, uh, or what what's your um, you know suggestion or recommendation for people who are just starting out right now? Um, you know, it, they might look at the the market and, and it might feel quite daunting to them, thinking that actually you know entrepreneurship is the least glamorous it's ever been. Uh, it actually you do have to eat a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> you know shit basically and uh, and and it's 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 tougher than it's ever been it certainly feels uh, you know I, I think i think i've done a lot of difficult things in my life this is definitely up there in <laughs> in the level of of uh, difficulty especially with the market changing and sometimes you know you look at the people who uh were quite lucky to raise when the market was hot you know, and, and you think to yourself, well, maybe they can keep going for another year or two. Eventually they are going to, they are going to run out of money and, and what's going to happen then. So in some ways, I, I, I feel like even though it's very hard for us right now, I kind of like this. I welcome this. And, and I'm like, if I can get through this, I can get through anything. But what's your thoughts for somebody who's just starting out right now? And they might look at this and think this is just too daunting. For me, entrepreneurship is a set of mind. You know, I, I've been an entrepreneur for many years. Of course, in my early days, I, um, you know, I went to work for some companies to get experience. But I've always wanted to work for myself and and you know be the CEO of the company. So you have that kind of mindset. And uh, most of the entrepreneurs that I see, they have similar mindset. It'll be very difficult for them to go and work for a company and for somebody else because they all they all have this. You know, brain always full of ideas. You know, I'm like, I always want to improve something. This is not working well. You know, why? Is, you know, so they have this mindset of of changing the way the status quo, right? And uh, people who always want to change the status quo, I mean, no, no matter what's happening in the market, I think they will. It's going to be very difficult for them to not think that way. They will still want to change it. So uh, the suggestion here would be. Don't try at this moment, at the state of, of market, try to build something that is so far away and so innovative that majority of people would not understand this. Uh, try to find something that can improve uh, whatever is happening, you know, with some software or some service or digitalize, let's say, uh, an, an older archaic uh, ecosystem or a vertical because there's still a lot. I mean, there's still so, so many... Uh, uh, verticals uh, in business and in economies in many countries that are so old they're still using like spreadsheets and 
pen and paper and all of these other things. So when it comes to like B2B SaaS, I say try to look for maybe they're not going to be so attractive at the moment, you know, these things and um, they're not going to be like super innovative, like 10, 15 years out, uh, you know, technologies, uh, you know, groundbreaking technologies, but maybe they'll be incremental innovations, let's call that, that, you know, you can implement and you can see the results like right away within like six months, you can see the effect on the, on somebody's business uh, from using your technology. So I would say that right now maybe is a good time for incremental innovations uh, that can show you quick results, quick revenues that investors could would support because they can see those results right away. And then uh, let's say you build a donkey first before you build a unicorn. You know, build a, a donkey, build build a company that can start working right away and it's a working little horse. And then you can add you know wings to it. You can add a horn to it. You can paint it in rainbow colors, whatever. But first, you know, try to do something that can show quick results and can give efficiency to somebody right away. Then investors would believe that this is uh, uh, survivable and this is not going to die and uh, it's scalable. And then you can build up on top of that, you know, uh, some innovative features and then kind of go to, the, to your moonshots and then try to change an industry completely, try to disrupt it. Because trying to come forward and say, I'm building a new Google, I'm building a new ChatGPT, I'm building a new Facebook right now, it's going to sound more like a fairy tale. And investors go, okay, okay, I heard this many times. So okay, thank you, next. So uh, it's just a state of, of market where uh, big ideas are hard to, to believe in at the moment. And uh, maybe you, get, you downscale it a little bit, uh, make it, uh, you know, um, more reliable and understandable with a horizon of a few years where you can show the uh, clear path to you know to profitability or to grow in revenues and then from there you will have a, a bigger plan like depending on your fundraising right saying hey if I raise this much then we can build up on top of that and then we go to you know to a different uh, to a different size of a mountain nice that that was a very very good ending uh, and, and sound advice. So basically, big ideas right now are not very believable. Just take baby steps, think about what can you improve in where the market is right now. Of course, with um, new technologies coming through the door every day, like ChatGPT, you could wake up in the morning and whatever you built might be completely irrelevant. But then you have to just try and figure out a way to, um, you know, to, to navigate the maze essentially so um well thank you so much uh zamir i really appreciate it. it it was a very very good conversation i learned a lot i hope that people who listen to it will also learn a lot and i hope to have you back on the pod yeah thanks for having me my pleasure I hope you enjoyed this interview with Zamir Shuko of Vibranium. Please be sure to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcasts so that you don't miss the future episodes. It will mean the world to me if you leave a review and share this podcast with other founders who you think might enjoy. It.